Revelation 13. But before we do, if it's working, we're going to try to show a video. Are we? No? Okay, the audio, we're having trouble with the audio. See, last week it was my fault. I just forgot to mention it. This week I'm remembering, and we're, we were having audio trouble earlier. Y'all, we're, we're working out the bugs. Uh, we're, you probably notice on Sundays very often this screen here is, you know, glitching and stuff. We are hoping to be able to do it with Wi-Fi and trying and even getting new, a router and so on. But it looks like we're probably going to have to run a hard wire. And not the end of the world. At the end, end of the day, it'll be more reliable. But just, you know, thank these men, Shannon and Bobby and Richard and others that are back there. Um, you know, it's, it's a week-by-week <laughs> process. So thank you, men, for what you do serving the church in this way. And we'll get them figured out little by little. Uh, Revelation 13. A couple weeks ago, we were in Revelation 12. Uh, we encountered the ancient enemy of God, Satan himself, the great dragon. And we saw this great cosmic battle between Satan as he basically is raging against God, against God's saints. He knows that he can't ultimately um, do anything against God, and so he brings out his wrath against the saints. Um, but the overarching application is we walked away from chapter 12, which we looked at in two parts. We walked away with this word that God will always protect his people. God will sustain and have his hand over his people, come what may. And when I say come what may, I mean it, it sometimes is, is very graphic here and how difficult these times are, and yet God is faithful. And today as we look at chapter 13, and I do plan to try to look at it as a whole, uh, we're finally arriving at the beast. Um, very often we think of Revelation, it's sort of this picture, and even when we get down to verse 18, these are very familiar ideas. And so it, they may not be clear to you what they mean, but at least it's sort of you have a category for these, the beast and the mark of the beast and, and 666 and these sort of things. So we're going to be unpacking these tonight. Let's read the text together beginning in verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Verse 3, on, uh, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Verse 5. And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in, the, in heaven. Uh, also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear to hear, let him hear. Verse 10, if anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call to the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the, fi the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Verse 13, it, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. 
And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who uh, would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can bury or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Here in these first couple verses, a terrifying creature arises from the sea. Uh, this vision really draws heavily, this whole chapter really, there's a lot that's drawing on Daniel chapter 7. You might go back tomorrow or sometime later this week and read Daniel chapter 7 and see these parallels. They're very strong. If you think back to when we ended a couple weeks ago in, verse 12, or in chapter 12, Satan, the, the, the dragon, is standing on the sea, the shore of the sea. Well, he's sort of standing there now to witness the rising of this beast. So this is flowing straight in from the last chapter. In Daniel, the, the beast represents great empires. There's four of them in the book of Daniel. There's only one here in this, in this more immediate sense. Um, there's only one. And John seems to have this one in mind being very likely, I mean, almost certainly Rome, the empire of Rome. Rome was so large, so powerful, kind of with each empire. You go from, um, from Babylon to Persia to the Greeks to Rome. Each empire in antiquity is getting bigger and bigger, more all-consuming, more all-powerful. Well, we're looking at Rome here as the contemporary empire that John has in mind. Satan, the dragon, um, gave it, this beast, its power and authority. Basically, these two beasts, there's one in the first half, and then basically from a, a verse 11 and following, there's a second beast. Um, they're basically the dragon's henchmen. They're doing his bidding. They work for him. Uh, and it could be, uh, and if we had time, I would kind of explore that are these uh, sort of representing Rome itself? Are these beasts themselves sort of representative of empires? Well, even, even if we don't explore that you know, really closely, I think we'll still get the general picture here just fine. In verse 3, the beast has a mortal wound on its head. Um, I actually thought, Russell, I was thinking about uh, uh, Snoke in Star Wars that has the wound. I think that might even be inspiration there. It basically looks like it had been killed, but it's sort of somehow healed and recovered. Um, and it's referenced here several times, uh, verse 12, verse 14. Clearly, this is an important image here. Later, it actually tells us the weapon. It was a sword that caused this wound in the beast's head, but it's healed. Um, he looks like he's been defeated, but he reemerges, again, almost with this idea of a, of a sort of resurrection. This idea of parody of what God has done throughout history is really strong here. Uh, this is just the first of several examples that we'll see where, where the adversary is, in a sense, parodying God. If you look down to the second part of verse 3 and into verse 4, the people followed the beast and worshipped the images of the dragon. Because the beast overcomes his wounds, again, this sort of uh, false resurrection, the people worship him. They're impressed. Wow, this beast survived. We thought it was uh, going to, but oh, he must be unstoppable you know, there's almost this idea of omniscience and om at the very least omnipotent. They're, they're impressed here at the power of this beast. We're going to see clearly who it is that's so impressed here. 
In verses 5 and 6, the beast uh, defines himself really by blasphemy. Just spewing out of his mouth blasphemy and pride and and haughty words. We see here the the time frame. Look there in in verses, see there five or six. Let's see, verse five, right at the very end, 42 months. We've seen that come up quite a bit, right? Sometimes 1,260 days, the same thing mathematically. It's a different way poetically just to say it. Um, We've seen it back in chapter 11, verse 3. We saw it in chapter 12, verse 6, and in a few other places as well. This time period, what is it? What, what are these 42 months? It's three and a half years. What, what does this represent? Well, it very well might represent simply this era between the resurrection of Christ and the return of Christ. What is going on here within this era? Um, but ultimately, we're not told clearly. Clearly symbolic. I don't think that we're meant to take this literally as three and a half years. Uh, some certainly have. But so much of this, especially when we're talking about these numbers, are, are to be seen symbolically, I think. We learn more about the nature of his blasphemies in verse 6. Look there with me. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is ultimately heaven, the heavenly beings, and even the saints that would be there in spirit in heaven. And so they're just cursing. He's cursing this beast, everything that God is and has done. Sort of, again, this idea of raging against God, I think, is prominent here. Any questions so far in those first six verses before we move on? Thoughts or insights. As we get to verse 7, for a time this beast made war on the saints. But notice the way that it's said here. Look at verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. God is still sovereign here. Whenever we see this is a divine passive, it's God who is allowing this. God is, is allowing the beast to do this, to sort of have this, this limited sphere of, of chaos. Um, God grants the beast this level of circuit power, but only for a time. Even there, we're told with these, these, these months, these days, it is, it is for this time. But look, it's, it's given quite a bit of power, even power over the nations, the peoples, the, the, the people of the earth. It's a frightening picture here. As we get to, to verse 8, it's as if all the earth, I mean, it almost seems at that moment, all the earth is worshiping this beast. Where, where are the Christians? You know, have they, have they given in as well? Well, it's, then it's clarified. What is the qualification that's given here? Not everyone is worshiping the beast. How does it say it? What is the qualification? Who is not worshiping the beast? The ones who have not written in the book of life. Yeah. So the ones who, are, who have not have their names written, they're the ones that are worshiping the beast. Those who have their name written in the book of life, we're familiar with that language, aren't we? Yeah, to have your name written in the book of life, you'll hear that in, you know, in songs and in hymns and things like that very often, won't we? It is those, those who are Christ, those who are secure in him, you know, they will not worship the beast, but everyone else, it's the idea of the earth dwellers. It's the unbelievers is the way it's often, uh, the way unbelievers are often called, these, these people of the earth. Uh, the city of man, to use Augustine's language here. Um, and so just an interesting way. Now, uh, goodness, if we had time, we could kind of pick apart. When you look at verse 8, even that phrase that Mickey mentioned that we're thinking about here, um, everyone who's, so, so I'm reading in the English Standard Version. If you have the NASB, uh, I think if you have the NRSV, does anyone have the, the NRSV? Um, you're probably going to follow here the same way. It says it this way. Um, those, whose, um, those whose names has not been written before the foundation of the world 
in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. The old King James, and I think the NIV follows the King James as well, actually uses this language to say that it's the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the earth. And the idea here is clearly either way, it's that God's, uh, ultimately this is God's sovereign plan from the beginning before the earth was even made. That language is used in Ephesians chapter 1. Um, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, this incredible idea how God, even before creation, knew and had plans for these things. Um, but certainly one of those things that just makes you, wow, the, the, the awe of God's omniscience, of his foresight. Uh, and here, probably even implicitly, speaking of the way that he knew those who were in him before the foundation of the earth. As we get to verses 9 through 10, um, there's this call. It kind of moves into a poetic section. You notice that in your text. It's kind of bracketed off. Verse 10, as you get to that, um, this is kind of almost leading us to think back to what we saw in the earlier portion of Genesis, or uh, to Revelation, rather. Uh, here, there's this call to faith, to endurance, because, again, this is, this is a difficult time. This is a dark time. The beast is given a lot of authority. He's able to, to cause a lot of destruction. It's clear here that Christians will face suffering. If they didn't, if Christians had been sort of taken out of all of this, well, they wouldn't need this encouragement. They wouldn't need these words. Um, but clearly there is a sense in which they are suffering through this, and yet never without God's hand removed, never with their future in any jeopardy. Great pressure is brought against them. Um, a second beast, and we'll get there in just a moment, will try to, to kill, to slay those who refuse to worship the beast. That's in verse 15. Any questions or thoughts before we go on to the second beast here? They're, they're pretty closely related, but any questions, insights? Okay, let's move in then. As if the first one wasn't bad enough, there is a second beast here. And verses 11 and 12 begins to, to unpack this. This one looks different from the first. Uh, it comes in the image, not of sort of this multi-head beast, but in the image of a lamb. Again, hear that idea of imitation. I think he's imitating the lamb of God. Uh, the first beast imitated in some more subtle ways of the diadems, for instance. Perhaps he's trying to be sort of a, uh, his own Messiah, his own Christ. But here clearly, explicitly, the lamb. This is Satan's M.O., I mean, this is what he has always done. He, he doesn't have creative power in and of himself. He can only parody what God has done and ultimately seeks to undermine. He tries to disguise himself, what does the New Testament say? As an angel of light. Um, this is a reminder, church, that, that we need to be on guard. Just because something looks like an angel of light doesn't mean it is. The old expression of it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it might not be a duck. Um, I was talking to a friend, this was a while back when we were in Louisville, and he had been, I don't remember if it was for school or what it was, but he was reading some philosophy, which, you know, I'm always interested to engage with that, and he was saying, yeah, I was reading about, you know, this particular philosophy, which clearly, I mean, I'm familiar with it enough to know it is quite at odds with Christianity, and he said, yeah, you know, and I, I know that there's some stuff in it that's, that's a little wacky, he said, but some of it's really compelling and really interesting, I've kind of found myself drawn in, I kind of can't. I can't put it down. And I said, well, of course. I said, that's always the case. I mean, if it was all hogwash, no one would read it. No one would have any interest in it. 
There's always some good. There's always some draw. There's always something in sort of this, this, this culture or this line of thinking or this philosophy that, that sort of draws people in. If it was all poison and obviously poison, who, who would be interested in it? So there's, there's a warning here that we have to be on guard just because things sort of, there's a few things, oh, I kind of like that. I like this within this philosophy of life or this, this way of living. Basically, that's what philosophy is, how, how to live our lives and explain and understand what life is about. This is a warning to us, church, that a shallow faith is a susceptible faith. We have to be on guard. Why, why else is it so important to, to, to read our Bibles why else is it so important to be within the fellowship of the church? Why else is it important to be on guard? Well, there is an adversary who seeks to parade around like an angel of light. The beast tried to disguise himself. Look here, he looks like a lamb, but as soon as he speaks, his voice gives him away. What does his voice sound like? It's the voice of a dragon. Think of that, of a little, little lamb, sort of in the beauty and humility of that, but as a voice like one who would consume like a dragon. In John 10, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You hear the voice of Jesus. If you are his, you follow him. You know it is the voice of God. We know when we read the word of God that, that we, are, we are hearing the very words of God. And we need to be on guard that ultimately we need to tell which voice is what. There are plenty of other voices out there. And the adversary, again, likes to disguise himself. Like the first beast, it is worshipped, this second beast is worshipped by many of the people of the earth, by the unbelievers. Um, it seems to be consumed with calling attention to, um, to the first beast. He's sort of just almost obsessed. Look at verse 14, sort of this obsession with the first beast. Commentators have argued, and I think there's something to be said, that this, think about it, the dragon... First beast, second beast, they sort of almost represent this unholy trinity. Again, parody of God. God is the holy trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, this second beast is sort of an unholy spirit. Um, so this, this, this three in one here, really all of it is Satan's doing, and yet manifested in these other ways. As we look at verses 13 through 15, the beast, again, no surprise here, he's deceiving. There's trickery. He's persecuting the saints, and he's calling for worship. Worship the beast. Worship the dragon. Going back to what I mentioned earlier about sort of empire, this would have immediately brought to mind the Roman Empire for early Christians. Uh, Rome demanded worship, especially of its emperor. Now, if, you, if Rome went into an area and conquered peoples, you could worship all of your gods. You could keep all of your old religion, but you also had to take on the Roman gods. That's how Rome in its, in its own mind was going to be strong. It needed all of the worship from its conquered peoples. And so, so you had to worship especially the emperor as the imperial cult comes on. And if you didn't, it would lead to persecution, even to the point of death. And so Christians, when they hear this word, I think would immediately have thought about Rome. These last couple verses, three verses rather, 16 through 18, uh, are probably the most mysterious uh, the beast requires a, a mark uh, on the hand, the right hand specifically, or on the forehead to show uh, their allegiance. Again, no one is allowed to get away. Either, either you are the beasts or you are going to be persecuted. There's no middle ground here. We often like to think, oh, if we kind of keep off to ourselves, we won't be bothered. No, no, there will be no middle ground. You either worship the beast, you have his mark, 
or ultimately you will be faced with persecution. Of course, this is well known in popular culture, isn't it? The mark of the beast, even for non-Christians, I mean, people are familiar with this. It comes up in pop culture quite a bit. We're going to see it again here in a couple weeks. If you flip over to chapter 15, verse 2, it comes up again, the mark of the beast in this way. The beast is going to use sort of an economic discrimination to bring pressure against those who don't fall in line with the beastly worship. Uh, now, it's, it's not clear that this is going to be a literal mark. Of course, in a lot of popular culture and, and through some, some popular literature, it's always a, a literal, either a sort of a tattoo or even in modern culture, a, a, you know, technology, a chip of some sort. I, I, don't, I don't think that this is a literal mark. I think it's like what we saw in Revelation chapter 7, verse 3, speaking about the sealing, um, the, the seals that would be placed on the saints and so on. I, I think this is symbolic. It's not physical. But it'll be clear which group you belong to. And that's ultimately the most important thing that I think we have to walk away with here. John here in, in the very end in verse 18, he kind of leaves this with a riddle. He says, you know, ultimately there's this number, right? This 666, right? And what does this mean? I mean, the way he says it, this, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. This might be referring to Nero, who was perhaps the most notorious Roman emperor of that century, was a, was a brutal persecutor of the church. Um, the apostle Peter and others were, were killed and martyred under the reign of Nero. If you, if you take the word Nero and Caesar, which is his name and his title, the way he would have been addressed, and if you transliterate those from Greek, which is the original language here, just follow with me, into Hebrew... Hebrew uses letters for numbers. So they don't have Roman numerals the way to do these letters. And so if you follow the, the, that, ultimately that transliteration, in Hebrew it amounts to 666. Now even if I'm explaining to you, it's kind of complex, right? I'm not sure that's what this is, but it might be. It is interesting that it amounts to 666. Um, there, there's all, again, why, why Nero? Well, because perhaps what he represents, sort of this evil king, that persecuted the church. So again, symbolically using that. It could be another parody. Think about it. Seven, seven, seven. Seven being the number of perfection. Three being the other holy number. And so that being sort of the ultimate perfection of numerology, seven, seven, seven. What is a parody of that? Well, six, six, six. It's also quite possible here that that's where this is going. At the end of the day, we're not certain. Now, this chapter ends on a dark and mysterious note, but hope is coming. Hang in there. We're getting there as we get to chapter 14. Uh, God's people can forever trust in their Lord and their Savior. He is sovereign even in the midst of all what looks like chaos and, and suffering here. There is a sovereign hand over each and every action, each and every um, movement throughout this period. We remember that whatever power the dragon has, it can do nothing outside of God's sovereignty. So there is comfort, there is hope in this, no matter what we may face. Any final thoughts or insights before we, before we conclude tonight? Questions? Has anyone solved the 666 question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and it does here as well. Yeah, yeah.
Yeah, the, the translation difference is uh, related to um, verse, verse 8, related to um, uh, the foundation of the world in the book of life, whether it's speaking about those, ultimately the believers that were ultimately known and established before the foundation, or if it was the lamb. The, the thing that's strange uh, in, in sort of thinking about that old formulation is the idea that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. Seems a little strange, but I mean, King James has been around 400 years. That's a long time. So I definitely, I don't think it's something we can easily throw out, but grammatically it does seem to be a much stronger case that, that this, the translation in the ESV and among several others is probably right. Other thoughts on that, Lee? No. Joy, you have a thought? Yeah, for the sake of, of the, the recording here, um, so, so Joy's asking about um, the sort of concern and even, I mean, sometimes, you know, downright fear of, of those who would unwillingly or unwittingly get the mark of the beast. I, I've, I've addressed it a couple times, but yeah, it is so important, you know, just to, to come back to it again. Um, it has been a long time. I think it was like back in chapter nine. So just to say it, it's a great point. Um, the idea here that this is not something that could be done to you. It's not like someone could sneak in your house at night and, and do this. It's clearly one who is worshiping in sort of this willing and, and um, conscious way. Someone has been given over to the beast. Now, could it be that someone, you know, at some time had professed a Christian or religious background and now is doing this? Yeah. And we see all kinds of people who fall away from grace in that sense, but no person who truly belongs to God, who is authentically saved and converted, will fall away. Uh, even going back to that text I mentioned earlier about the, the, Jesus is the good shepherd and John 10 so strongly you know, declares that, that, that he will lose none that are his. And so as Christians, this is not something we fear, but it is something that, again, for those who would, who would ultimately witness this, if we think about this as something future, um, this is something that ultimately, uh, and there are so many in, uh, interpretive things, even as I mentioned that, I try to have so many caveats in this. Um, it's something that I think clearly is just meant to mark out those who are gods and those who are not. Um, and that's, that's the key idea here. Yeah, so goodness, the, the vaccine, the chip. I mean, with each, every decade, there's sort of a new fear of concern, right? My, my uncle, uh, you know, he used to always joke with us as a kid when we would go to Chuck E. Cheese. Is there Chuck E. Cheese around here? I think there is, right? You know, they give you the little stamp as you go, and he would say, oh, no, not my left hand, or not my right hand. Make sure you get my left, you know? And we kids would always say, Uncle Marco, yeah, it's not the mark of the beast. They don't do that anymore. Well, I'm telling you, that's probably why. You know, people getting concerned here. No, and so, yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, it is something that I think clearly, you know, it should not be a concern for the saints. But for the earth dwellers, those who would worship, it is something that, that is defining. Yeah. Any other questions related to some of that? Insights, thoughts before we close? Okay. All right, well, let's pray. Our Lord in heaven, I do ask God that... Um, Lord, you would have your hand uh, over these sweet people, God, these saints, Lord, I pray that we would um, have confidence in you, God, that we would be grounded in our faith, that we would see the devil's schemes for what they are, God, that we would be wise and discerning, that we'd be given to study, that we'd be given to um, ultimately to life and fellowship together as your people, 
in a way that strengthens us and builds us up as a church and as individual believers. God, I pray that as we continue on through this study of Revelation, God, that it would um, help us, God, in that, uh, Lord, that journey of growth together. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. Have a great night.